talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Oh, yeah, that's my song. Always has been, folks. Howdy. This is Kurt Babakwa, and welcome to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. Welcome back. Episode 6. So we're a few weeks into the Major League season, and you might be wondering about what we've seen so far. Which one of these individual hot starts is for real? You look at the leader... And the leaderboards and realize it's still very early, of course. Robbie Cano and Joe Maurer, yeah, they're probably not going to hit 400. Trevor Williams is definitely not going to win 30 games. But there's always somebody who breaks out early and stays hot all season. Who might that be? How about Oakland third baseman Matt Chapman? Is he going to lead the American League in homers? Yeah, just putting it out there. On the other side of the ledger, Who's somebody off to a cold start who might heat up with the weather? Maybe Chase Headley down in San Diego? And can any closer hold a job? Come on, guys. And if you're a fantasy player, you're wondering the same thing. Or if you're just a fan, don't worry. Taking a seat in the dugout with me today is Tim McLeod, of Prospect 361 Fantasy Baseball Podcast. He's here to ease our minds. He's here to answer questions, and he will. But first, you know, as time passes, we read books that people write. We'll be able to gather information and gain perspective on what happened in the past, and we'll be able to better evaluate the work that Don Fear did as executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association. What we can say is that Don Fear did a thankless task to the best of his ability, and that ability is massive. He sacrificed his personal popularity along the way because, trust me, folks, he was villainized. In 1994, we all remember that year, Fear attempted to reach a no-strike, no-lockout agreement with the owners, and they refused to give him one, all but guaranteeing that they would lock the players out the following spring. Well, nobody wants that. He then set a strike date with an eye towards a resolution that would save the postseason, and we all know that didn't happen. Then he and his players... He and the players, rather than acting Commissioner Bud Selig or his cartel, is the public face of the lost season. And you know what? That's unfortunate. The entire episode serves an example of how little the public understands the issues involved and how poorly the media educated them at the time. I want to try to parallel a Major League Baseball player's profession. Before we get into this pro and con about unionization and arguments, everyone needs to keep in mind 
some very important points. In virtually any other profession, you have the right to choose your employer, assuming they choose you to, of course. But in professional baseball, very few players have this option, thanks to the draft system. Think about this. You graduate from Notre Dame with a law degree. You'd like to take a corporate job in Chicago, your hometown. But instead, you find you've been drafted by a firm in Alabama. They'll decide you do litigation because that's where their money is. Not that you get any. The firm makes millions, and attorneys who have been in the business 20-plus years earning 300 k a year, but you get 15 k with a modest annual raise for the first decade. You don't want it? Well, that's tough. That firm owns your rights. You can't take a job with just anybody, just them. That's the way it is here in baseball. Then after a few years, the firm decides to sell your work to an insurance company in Wichita. You pack up your family and move because you have no choice. Finally, you're free to accept a job offer from another firm of your choosing. That's what it's like to be a professional baseball player. Now, I'm not saying to feel sorry for these guys. There's big money being made out there, but there's also a lot of guys that are struggling. Well, joining us today in Dirty Kurtz Dugout is a guy that served longer than anybody else did. Even Marvin Miller is executive director of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Don Fear. Don, welcome to the show, and I thank you immensely for joining me. Well, it's nice to talk to you again. Glad to help. Don, you're now executive director in the National Hockey League. That's right. What's the main difference representing hockey players compared to baseball players? Well, I guess I'd say several things. First of all, um, the league has less revenue, so there's less to spread around when you're trying to come up with creative solutions to problems. The economics, though, are basically the same because the economics of the player negotiations has to do with the leagues trying to put up a series of restraints so that they would not pay what they would pay in a free market and players would have less choice. On the player side, there are two differences. The first one is, this is not insignificant, the players are younger. Uh, They come into the league and you can get star players at 19, 20 years old, 21, 22. It's very rare for a Major League Baseball player to come in that soon and without having had what you might call the maturing experience of um, the minor leagues. That is a bit of more of a challenge. The other thing, and this I did not anticipate, is that in Major League Baseball, the overwhelming majority of, of players come from two places. They either come from the states or they come from uh, the Caribbean, essentially, including the northern tier of South America where they are suffused with uh, American culture and ideals and and so on, putting the Cubans to the side. In hockey, only about 25 or 24 percent of the players are American. About half are Canadian, and the balance come from 14 or 15 different European countries. And that means they are not immediately familiar with American law, which governs the way we do things primarily. They're not immediately familiar with the kind of outspoken statement of positions and beliefs that Americans take for granted, and it makes a difference. Let me ask you about what what do you say to fans who think professional athletes are overpaid? Um, 
I say they don't understand the business or the economics. Look, um, this is an industry in which the players, first of all, are the absolute best in the world at what they do, not best in your local town, not best at something at which a lot of people can acquire skills, but something which is fantastically difficult to do, in which the competitive environment, so far as I can tell, is unparalleled in any business, in any profession, in any activity of, of work. And, you know, they, they say that, that the, the, the hardest thing there is to do is to jump from almost at the major league level to the major league level and then to stay there. But what people don't understand is just how fine that distinction is. Um, and yet the players all understand it. So that's the first thing. Second thing is there's nobody writing a script. You know, they're not selling this in movie theaters. The leagues operate as cartels in which they divide up markets and all the rest of it. It's why the leagues are basically uh, depression-proof and recession-resistant in, in, in terms of their economic activity. And so third, who, who's going to get the money that comes in if not the only people that the customers are coming to watch? You know, I've, I've often said, and you can take this across any major team sport, for all I know, golf and tennis too, and you can basically say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to change everybody except the players. The coaches, the managers, the front office people, the owners, the umpires, the referees, uh, the scorekeepers, the broadcasters, everybody in the world, but we're going to leave the players the same. Does that affect the industry? The answer is no, not a bit. You'll get just as many fans. Let's take Major League Baseball, since that's what we're talking about. We're now going to take the best 850 players in the world, and we're going to get rid of them and bring in another 850 players. Does that change the game? And the answer is it becomes a pale shadow of the game that it once was or of uh, the enterprise that it once was. The players are all that matter. And, by the way, we have a, a, uh, a real-life exemplar of that. When I was uh, in the midst of negotiations before the strike ended in the spring of 95, before the owners were found to have violated the law and bargained in bad faith, before that happened, I was talking to a reporter who was down at spring training, and we had so-called replacement players, although, you know, I and, and, and the current players tended to call them scabs. Um, and I was talking to a reporter I knew well, and I said, um, so what do you notice? Is it different than having the regular players there? He says, oh, yeah. I, and I said, well, what's the difference? And he thought for a minute or two, and this is a really knowledgeable, thoughtful guy, and he said the sound. You don't hear the bats. You don't hear the whistle of the ball. You don't hear the pop in the gloves. It's just not the same. It wasn't. Wow. That, uh, never thought about that. But this is something that I have thought about lately. You and I had a conversation a couple of months ago uh, about uh, some guys that seemed to think that they were left out in the negotiation process uh, with the Players Association during uh, collective bargaining agreements and things like that. That's not what we're going to get into right now. But it's brought up so many questions to me because I've looked into that. And one question that I have for you is why didn't the Major League Baseball Players Association combine their efforts to help alumni players and minor leaguers? Is well, those are just two too big a job. Let's, let's take alumni players first. In terms of um, what you can collect, well, let me back up a minute. First of all, we don't 
with one limited exception, Major League Baseball Players Association does not legally represent or have the right to represent minor league players or former players. The exception would be players on the 40-man roster. Now, in theory, you could go get permission to represent them, but that would be a long, ugly fight with the owners uh, without any degree of, of success with the minor league players. The law doesn't say you can represent whoever you want to. It has to be... Uh, uh, employees who want to and what's known as an appropriate bargaining unit and the legal complications of that when you go to minor league baseball are not at all small. So that's the the, uh, first thing. Secondly, when we get to um, the minor league players we could represent, we did over time um, govern the circumstances in which they went to and from the major leagues, ended up with what we called split minimum salaries, which got them real contracts. It ended up vastly improving their health care and some other benefits. In terms of former players, the union is entitled to represent current employees, not former employees. And what that means is that for most of the time, the owners are not obligated to negotiate with you about former employees. One of the things that the union was able to do throughout my tenure, and I believe since I left also, has been to vary that to the extent that you were able to negotiate benefits for current employees when they became former employees. The subsidy on health care premiums, if you have four years in the major leagues, is, is uh, one example of that. Uh, and secondly, you were able to very often reach back in bargaining and improve the benefits of uh, former players. And that's important because pen, um, Professional athletes have one big set of different circumstances between them and ordinary employees in terms of their retirement benefits. In almost, in virtually all other industries or professions, you begin to take your retirement benefits more or less at the point in time in which you quit working. So if you stop working at age 55, then your retirement benefits are there. You've got your entire working life up to age 55 to negotiate them either on your own or, or through your union and so on. You're playing Major League Baseball. Let's say you had a really extended career, a really long one, and you retired at age 35. Well, it's going to be somewhere between 20 and 27 years later before you take your benefits, and that's an enormous amount of time for inflation to eat into the purchasing power of the retirement benefits that were negotiated. So it's helpful to be able to do that. So things are always open to go back in and collectively bargain points, no matter what they might be. Is that not a correct statement? Um, or does the law no, prohibit has, you from doing it? More, it you, you have to make the comment more specific than that. You can, with respect to a mandatory subject of bargaining, when the contract is open, you can negotiate anything uh, uh, which – in, in the area that the law says the employer must negotiate with you. If it's a permissive subject of bargaining, the owner doesn't have to talk to you about it. So in the case of some of these players, and I'm going to go back to the conversation that we had a couple of months ago, some of the players that we'll call the Lost Boys of Summer, for no better terminology, pre-1980 non-vested players that – because of the, the way the, go, the negotiations went, all players from 1980 forward, 
were afforded the ability to be vested after spending just 43 days at the major league level. Pre-1980, players had to have four years of major league service. So there were a lot of guys that fell within the realm of having 43 days in the big leagues up to four years from pre-1980 that didn't get to be vested players like the post-1980 guys because of the collective bargaining agreement that happened in the 81 season. Is that a situation where Tony Clark in the Major League Baseball Players Association has the right to sit down with the owners and say, we want to talk about this a little further because there are guys that are in this group that we feel should be taken care of a little bit better? Uh, There is always the opportunity to sit down and say, we want to persuade you that this is something, first of all, you should negotiate with us about. Secondly, I assume that it it would come without uh, declining or decreasing the benefits of current players. Third, uh, let's work to find a way to do it. But the third part is, is not so easy to do. You have to remember that this plan began not in 1980 or in 1970. It began in 1947. And there was a pension agreement, a whole series of them, between 1947 and 1980. And up until 1967, those agreements were contributory by the players. They paid for part of the benefits, not all of it, as I recall, but they paid for part of the benefits. And if they didn't vest, they took their money out. They took it back out. And so they, they got the money back out that, that they put in. When you go one step further, um, if you talk to somebody who hasn't played since 1973 and did not vest in the plan, or 1963, and did not uh, vest in the plan, it would be very difficult, I think, to make a case that the owners are required to discuss uh, uh, creating benefits for those players that did not previously exist. If there was a will, there could be a way to find it, even if the way they found it was essentially a, a gift or a grant of licensing rights by former employees for which they were paid something which substituted for retirement income. But it would be difficult, if not impossible, to, to I'll just say difficult, to create or fold people into a plan decades and decades uh, afterwards. In 1980 when the switch was made to uh, immediate vesting. It's actually one-day vesting. You just didn't get a benefit until 43 days or a quarter of a, of a season. Um, in terms of that, I remember Marvin telling me that this was the best we could do at the time, and it was really great to get that going forward. And you have to remember that the kind of revenue which flowed into Major League Baseball in 1980 when we were on the verge of a, of a, a major showdown the following year over free agency and so on was a pale shadow of, of uh, what is there now. Don, I, I appreciate the time that, uh, that you've given us on this day, but I, I, would, I would kick myself in the butt that uh, I didn't ask you this question before I let you go. Actually, it's two-part. Uh, just going back to this last spring, all the talk about uh, the Players Association, uh, the possibility of collusion, whether or not it was there or not. Has the power shifted in your mind, and this is just your opinion, back to the owners? And do you have any unsolicited advice for Tony Clark 
<laughs> well, first of all, if I have advice for 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 Tony Clark, uh, I'm going to give it to him. Uh, I'm not going to give it to to uh, the listeners. I think I owe him that, and I think I owe the dignity, the position I used to have for so long. Uh, that secondly, I don't know whether the power has shifted. When you saw the change in bargaining behavior, uh, uh, which was palpable and apparent, um, one of the things that you would expect the union would do, and I expect has done, at least I hope they have, I have no reason to think they haven't, is to go through and see if they can attribute causes to the change in behavior, and if so, whether those causes suggest something which is not consistent with the contractual guarantee of free agency and no collusion, or um, whether it is consistent uh, with that. And if it's the latter, then you see if you've got enough evidence to go forward. Part of my hesitancy, Kurt, is that I was not part of the last two bargaining rounds, and I know a number of changes were made in the basic agreement, and I don't want to, to comment as to whether or not those would meaningfully uh, be a part of any discussion as to whether there was any unlawful collusion. I think that's fair. But I had to ask you. Uh, ab- ab- absolutely. But Don, I, I, I will tell you something else. Tell me. This is not a, this is not a, a political comment. It's just a, a, a rueful one. From the time the collusion started in 1985... Until about 18 months ago, the only time I ever heard the word collusion was uh, having to do with the owners in Major League Baseball. It, it now has a different meaning out there. That's that's a good point. <laughs> Don, go back to your day. Uh, again, I certainly appreciate it. Uh, good luck going forward, my friend, and we will talk soon. Thank you, sir. Be well. Thank you. Well, you can see why at the time of my playing, at the major league level, we were certainly the most powerful union. The Major League Baseball Players Association has been called the most powerful union in the world. I think just by listening to this discussion with Don Fear, you can see why. And his predecessor, Marvin Miller, of course, Michael Weiner, uh, was a guy that took it over. He died tragically and unexpectedly of brain cancer. Uh, during his term as executive director of the Players Association, uh, and then Tony Clark took over. We will find out, I think, sooner than later, whether or not the Players Association is and will continue to be the most powerful union in the world. Well, I promise you Tim McLeod of Prospect 361 Fantasy Baseball He has his own podcast. We'll find out where you can follow him. Tim, welcome to the show. I appreciate it. Welcome to Dirty Kurt's Dugout. You're sitting on the pine with me, my friend. Uh, Good afternoon, Kurt. Yeah, totally my pleasure. Now that I got my passport out, I I think we got ourselves a good phone connection. Yep, absolutely. So you know what? I don't know anyone that follows Japanese baseball as much as you do, and you've got to be tickled pink over this kid up the freeway for me uh, that's doing a pretty good job both on the mound and at the plate. Well, yeah, I, I've been following Otani since uh, his high school uh, his high school years. And, you know, after that rough spring training, uh, uh, we, we heard a lot of uh, – we had a lot of question marks and a lot of doubt as to 
uh, his particular skill set and how it was going to translate. And yeah, I am totally, totally enthused and happy to see that he's sort of catching on to this North American game a little bit, uh, Kurt. Boy, I'll say he's, uh, I think he's limited uh, opposing hitters to some stupid batting average like 090 or something like that. And he's hitting (laughs) 350 himself. Well, yeah, you know, he's got incredible drive, incredible focus, and uh, I'm just excited and happy that he's off to such a great start. I don't know if you've had a chance to watch uh, some of the stuff he's throwing up there, but it is absolutely filthy, Ed. Like I said, I'm just happy he's off to a good start. Hey, you know what? I'm no different than anybody else. If I know Tani's going to be in the game or he's pitching, I'm going to find a station that's broadcasting that game because I want to see it. I mean, this guy, he's got to be bringing a lot of interest to the game, maybe as much as any other player in a major league uniform. But as a two-way player, Otani's posed some challenges for fantasy baseball in the industry. Uh, I understand that in some leagues, and trust me, I don't know a whole lot about this fantasy thing, but I'm trying to learn because I want to someday sit down with my sons and do an actual fantasy baseball league and get into it. But I I understand that there's some leagues where you have to draft him twice if you want to use him both as a pitcher and a hitter. How's that working out for fantasy baseball? Well, it's such a new concept. Having a player that is eligible to both pitch and hit and as a, as a result of the, the new, newness in this whole concept, most, uh, most platforms aren't set up or haven't been to accommodate it. So, yeah, there are various different uh, scenarios that are put forward. And, you know, we've seen you draft them. Uh, you draft them as both a hitter and a, st- and a pitcher. You can use them uh, uh, in both situations in your active lineup. Uh, I, I think the... The key is that it's just so radically new and different. It's going to take a while for our game to come up with rules and accommodations that are going to work. Let's face it, the game of fantasy baseball wasn't around when Babe Ruth was playing, right? That's for sure. You know, closers have always been volatile, uh, it seems, uh, throughout the course of baseball. But it seems like this year it's even worse. I mean, even Kenley Jansen, who – you know, I thought I thought he was going to follow in Mariano Rivera's footsteps and just dominate people year in and year out. But he struggled a little bit. What's a smart fantasy player do if they've got a Kenley Jansen? Uh, just have a little bit of patience. Uh, you know, hey, he's dealing with a dead arm period, and I, I think that's not really all that uh, all that rare or uncommon, Kurt. So. Just exercise a little bit of patience. Kenley, uh, Kenley will be fine in the long run. And when it comes to closers, uh, there's definitely something to be said for drafting proven quality closers. You know, you look at your top tier, and there's not that much movement in that direction. It's it's more towards the uh, the the bottom the bottom tier of closers and. Yeah, historically, it's always been like that. We've seen change, and this year is no different. Tim, finally, you're you're a guy that's known as somebody who enjoys speed merchants on the base paths. Oh, yeah. I, I don't have to tell you. Stolen bases are harder to come by than ever before uh, nowadays. If somebody in last place in the steel category of the Roto League, 
What do they do? Where do they turn for help? Well, you know, right about now, there's a, you know, Rajay Davis has stolen four bases. I think he's only, uh, I think he's only got 25 at bats under his belt. He's not a full-time player, but if you're looking for cheap speed, there's, there's Rajay Davis. Uh, there's a kid in, uh, kid in Tampa Bay, Malik Smith, uh, have yourself a Melex moment and draft Mr. Smith. Yeah, he stole, what, 88 bases back in 2014. And right now it looks like Kevin Kiermaier might have hurt himself again. So that guarantees some at-bats. So I think both of those players uh, can provide some assistance in that uh, category for you, Kurt. Tim McLeod, thanks again for sharing your time and knowledge with our listeners. Uh, if somebody's hearing you for the first time here on Dirty Kurt's Dugout and they want to find you, and keep this discussion going, uh, where do they go? The easiest spot to get a hold of me, Kurt, is on Facebook, the Facebook group, The Bullpen, or you can uh, you can try getting a hold of me through Twitter at TimothyLMC. And I thank you so much for having me on, Kurt. Hey, uh, it's, it's my pleasure, as usual. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. And we will talk again in the future. Sounds good, Kurt. And... Ozzie Alves for Rookie of the Year. He's the man. There you go. Have a good one. <laughs> you got it. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed Dirty Kurt's Dugout and want to support the show, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash You will not believe the reward levels that are being offered at Patreon. Please do it. Episode 6 is over. Thanks, everyone. This is Kurt Bavacqua sitting on the pine. In Dirty Kurt's dugout, can't wait for number seven. I'll talk to you soon. Goodbye now. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella. Talking baseball, the man and Bobby Fella, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, KC was winning, Hank Aaron was beginning, one Robbie going out, one coming.